Join me as I talk with people who express their creativity in ways that can inspire the rest of us to recognize our own creativity. And if you enjoy these conversations, please like, subscribe, and share them. Okay, hello and welcome to Creativity Conversations. This is episode 42 and I am with the dynamic and inspiring Elanda Williams. Good morning, Elanda. Good morning, Nina. How are you? I am well. I assume you are the same because you look radiant. Oh, well, you know, I, I might look radiant, but it's the morning, it's 9.30, it's, I'm in Philly, it's a little foggy, it looks like it really, really wants to rain, so... I'm ready for spring to really arrive. Well, we know that radiance comes from within, so that's fair. It doesn't matter what the weather is. So for those of you who haven't been on these calls before, we basically deconstruct the nature of creativity. And this will be a very special call because Ilanda does something that probably most people don't typically associate with creativity because we usually think creativity means artistic, but Artistry happens in all different ways. So I'm going to read a bit of Ilanda's bio and then we're going to see what happens from there. So Ilanda, Dr. Ilanda Williams is the Director of Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, known as JEDI, which I love that name, at B-Lab, a nonprofit organization that has a vision of an all-inclusive, sustainable economy that creates a shared prosperity for all. In this role, she works to create a healthy, inclusive, anti-racist culture for all employees and oversees B-Lab's JEDI strategies. For the past decade, Dr. Williams has been focusing her professional work on development, equity, and connecting resources to people who are underprivileged, underrepresented, and underserved. Her Bachelor of Arts degree is in Human Services and Psychological Studies from the University of Pittsburgh. She has her Master's degree in Educational Leadership and Management from Strayer University and a doctoral degree from Capella University with a concentration in Educational Leadership and Management. Most recently, Dr. Williams is a recipient of a Diversity First DEI Champions Award. This national award honors professionals who are passionate about creating an impact in the field of diversity and inclusion. Diversity champions continue to put diversity first through visionary leadership and commitment to fostering change for ages to come. Well, that sounds impressive. (laughs) Does it sound impressive? I don't know. It's always always so humbling to hear someone read your bio back to you. (laughs) Sometimes I've heard people say, is that really me? Or oh, I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that thing. But it's genuine. Sometimes you really feel that way. I know. And you are. Even if you don't feel that way, it's what you do. Yep. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So tell us about Jedi. Tell us how you got there. I know we talked a little bit about the map from your bio, but yeah. I'd love to hear it from you because you've got a lot more of the the uh, inside Inside. details. Yeah, I've got a really interesting background. I, this is a very common question, especially this year. I've got a lot of folks just asking like, how'd you get here? How did you get your job? Um, And my first reaction is always like, I fell into it, honest and truly. It is a passion, people are my passion. 
education is my passion. Um, and so I gravitated towards education, but I went to college with the intentions on becoming a pediatric surgeon. <laughs> I started at Pitt as a bio pre-med major. Um, I had, I had shadowed the first black um, transplant surgeon, black woman transplant surgeon in um, Pittsburgh. Um, and it was a life-changing experience like to see this. And, and I spent my summer with her in the OR shadowing her um, doing transplant. Um, and I was like, this is what I wanna do. I wanna go into medicine. Well, I'm not good at math. That's just all there is to it. I'm a people person, I'm a lyricist. We could talk all day but math was never my forte. Um, and about uh, two, two or three years in, I, I quickly learned that I needed to shift. Um, and when I zoomed out and looked at my background, I realized I had a lot of psychology courses. I just gravitated towards like psychology, sociology, how people think, how they act, how, they, how the different groups coming together create different groups and different experiences. I've always found that quite interesting. Um, and so uh, I switched my major uh, I made my own major. I created a major at the University of Pittsburgh, um, human services and psychological studies. Um, so I got a bachelor's of arts degree in human services and psych studies. Um, and I loved it. And I just kind of fell into that, that reign. Education was important to me. So I understood that uh, education was really a key. I also understood that education does not uh, show up equitably for children, especially for young black children. Um, so I really set my sights in higher in, in, in um, early education, early childhood education. Um, and then fast forward, I did that for a number of years. I was a daycare uh, uh, director. I did, yeah, and, and I, was a, I was a daycare teacher and I was an early education uh, a professional and I loved that. Um, and that was a really good highlight of my life. But I quickly realized that like real change, systemic change probably wasn't gonna happen um, in early childhood. Uh, and so I went back to school um, and I decided that I wanted to teach at the college level. Um, and then, so I did that for a while. I, did, I was a college professor for a number of years. Um, and then I realized uh, what really is something that's interesting is in order to create change, being in front of the classroom or in front of the, you know, the chalkboard in higher education wasn't really where I saw the change happen. Mm -hmm. And I said, I've got to get in those offices. I've got to get like back there by the provost. I've got to get near the vice provost and the senior vice provost. I've got to get around some other folks if I really want to start seeing change. Um, and I wanted to see change in the demographics of the students that were getting admitted to the colleges. And I definitely wanted to see change in the diversity among the faculty um, and the staff and some diversity, right? Because some colleges and universities do really, really well in diversity in certain areas. Um, but when it comes to professorship, not so much, or even getting a tenure. Um, so I did a lot of work in higher education and I did make it to the provost office and I was there for about five years um, doing uh, civil equity work and diversifying the faculty. Um, and after a while, higher education is rich and white. U.S. higher education and in, in the U.S. education system um, is a very rich, old, white male space. Um, and those were barriers that were just getting really, really tough to change. Um, and it was getting harder and harder for me to really be able to have the mental fortitude and the capacity to endure 
uh, kind of navigating that space to get to the change. Um, and so the university I was at was was a nonprofit. I've always had interest in nonprofits, mm-hmm. always worked with um, uh, education, but also social sectors and civil sectors, local churches and organizations. And I've always looked at ways where if I was working at a business, how can I reach out to some of these organizations to try to collaborate? Um, so, and then I found B-Lab. I was not aware of B Corps um, in the sense I am now uh, until, until B-Lab. Um, so can you, for, stop, sorry for interrupting, but can you no. tell us a little bit more for people who don't know about B Corp or B Lab, what that environment is and what it Perfect. does? Love it. Love it. So I, I tell people that I started to feel like I was fighting the fight with one hand tied behind my back. Um, and I was ready to kind of untether my hand and really get to work. Um, and I started searching and I started searching and I came up with B Lab. Um, and when I looked into what B-Lab was, I was really, really impressed with the work that they do. B-Lab is a nonprofit organization that certifies for-profit businesses on um, civil and social and environmental business practices. Um, we look at things like diversity among staff. We consider um, whether or not, what's the differentiation between your lowest paid staff member and the highest paid um, individual at the organization. Um, and we actually measure some of those things set standards, um, and then have a a level of requirements that you have to make in order to become a certified B corporation. Um, So they're great for the environment. They give back to their communities. They, you know, a lot, we have, we have interest in creating a better world, something equitable. Um, And so they're businesses that really want to try to work together to figure out how can we create a better world. Businesses really are the key to, to what we accept. Businesses are the key to to how families live their lives. We all have to be um, civil individuals and we all have to be in the capitalist world, whether we like it or not. Right. And so how do we create something that's actually going to be helpful for folks? Um, so and this saw, is something again, I'm going to, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to highlight that that's something that that focus of making business a force for good rather than a force of um separation and class distinction is I mean, it couldn't it's so needed it, it hasn't even the more companies there are now there are how many companies now that are b corp certified over 2700 wow yeah yeah and we're a global organization yeah. um so b lab is global but we have global partners so we have global partners across the world that are trying to instill these same business practices and standards in organizations and businesses in their regions. So East Africa, East Asia, um, Amsterdam, you know, we're, we're all over the globe um, and we're really just trying to make a difference. But if you think about Jedi, so this is where the creative really comes into play. Uh, business has been done a certain way. Um, and I think a lot of us can think about business as bittersweet. Um, sometimes it does well and good for the community, good for people. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, a lot of times it doesn't. Too often it doesn't. Um, and so we have a lot of like-minded people that are trying to tackle the same problems, but those problems show up differently, right? You know, uh, poverty looks differently in the U.S. and Canada than it does in East Asia or Africa or just somewhere in the in the U.S., right? Looking at things from the West Coast and the East Coast are very different. 
So we are often, I'm often challenged, my team is often challenged with how do we approach these conversations? How do we approach finding the solutions to these problems that we've never found solutions to before? You have to have some creativity. You have to have some creativity and you have to have a little moxie. Like you have to have a little willingness to try something different and not be afraid of failure. And so we talk a lot about white supremacy and how there are principles around white supremacy. White supremacy, is, I and I upheld um, notions of white supremacy. It's about, it's about these things that, that if we're thinking about how the world was created and the folks that were in power and what the folks who were in power looked like, they made the rules. It's, it's fair to assume that some of those rules that were made by some of those people aren't there. So now we have to think differently and kind of what we've been on an anti-racism journey. I'm on an anti-racism journey. I'm encouraging everyone to consider what an anti-racism journey could look like for you. Yeah. Um, you it's okay to, to be not racist. I love that. But we're at a crossroads and we need folks to actually be anti-racist. We need folks to speak up, to say something, to draw the line in the sand and say, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So this is such a rich area of exploration and creation. Can you share some of the things that you start looking at when you try to address these questions? Ah, okay. Like what does it look like or how does it feel or what do you actually see for a result as you begin to come up with different solutions, different ways to solve problems? So I'll think of something um, um, a little more micro, because it might be easier tan- tangentially for folks to think about. Um, sorry, my notifications. We can't we can't catch them all. No. Um, <laughs> let's see. Something a little more micro would be wellness. <clears throat> we started looking at wellness in the workplace. So I sit on, or I was sitting on, I sit in the POPs team people, operations, and our people and culture team. Um, and it's our fancy way of saying HR, but we like to say we're much more than, than, than human resources, right? So our team, um, and we have teams at BLAP that specifically focus on the culture um, at work. And we do a number of uh, research and surveys to try to identify what that would be. And we identify that wellness is something that, that needs to be looked at. We also looked at... Um, research in the field that is indicating that wellness is now becoming a part of HR. It's become a part of how we take care of our staff. I mean, when we understood that wellness was not at a level um, comparatively to maybe some other B Corps that we felt comfortable with, we really want to improve upon these numbers. We zoomed out to try to look at how. This is where creativity and Jedi meet. We can't just say everyone at B-Lab. How is everyone at B-Lab doing? We have to take into consideration the most marginalized populations and the systemic barriers that are in that that are creating some of these um, impediments to wellness. When we think about the past year that we've had, COVID nineteen, especially here in the U.S., civil and social unrest, uh, the, the murders of African American men and women, there's a psychological burden that is is put upon some individuals in the workplace in a very different way than others. They lived that. They, tap, they had to have this conversation with their children at the breakfast table this morning. 
they had to have this conversation with their husband and their wife, you know, in the evening when they were trying to rest and then get up to work and then come to work and work their 40 hours as if nothing ever happened, as if these are not things that they're dealing with. So how can we really truly address the wellness of our staff and not take those things into consideration? So what now do we do? And so now we have to either think about the problem in a more broadly way, think about impediments, who's the most marginalized, who won't be able to access this and why? Those are the types of questions. Then you can start getting creative about what you do. And so two years ago, we partnered with um, two therapists to offer mental health services to all of our staff free of charge. We incur all of the costs um, and we work with our insurance carrier to um, provide some reimbursements for some of those costs to us as an organization for, for this type of a program. Um, and 100% of everyone who's participated in this program has rated the therapist and the services four or five out of five. Um, one third of the organ, 33% of the organization has utilized the services at least once in the past two years. Um, and so it shows the growing need and we're able to kind of track. That's a very small micro thing within an organization um, and the approach that one has to have to really not only get creative, but get creative with Jedi as the focus. Wow. For people who uh, may not have caught this the first time around, would you just remind us what Jedi stands for? Yeah, I think I might have missed it. And you were the J, right? You put in the J part? I did add the J. So um, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, When I first started in January 2019, I think it was, um, I was the director of of equity, diversity, and inclusion, EDI. Um, EDI was very common, uh, getting getting more common. Um, And that's what it stands for. Um, And sometime last year, um, around June, very shortly after, um, we coined our anti-racism statement and commitments. I like to say that. We didn't just write the statement and put it on our website. We wrote the statement, but we got a number of commitments from our leaders and um, our global partners um, in order to, to, before we were able to put the statement out, I wanted to make sure that the statement was coming with things that we're actually going to do now, not just say. So around that time, which was uh, July of last year, um, I added the J. I was like, I think we need to, let's say justice, right? Because that was starting to become something that was more popular. And we started having a lot of conversations around climate justice and how climate change and the ideology of, tra- of climate change really should be climate justice. And it should be about creating a better world in a way that is more equitable for everyone. And when you're thinking about justice and putting justice at the center, at the core of the work, it's really about thinking about impediments mm-hmm. and past impediments and systems that are already in place that might be preventing someone from having access. Um, and so I I guess I should ask permission to interrupt because don't this is a conversation (laughs) so I don't look at it as an interruption what are so some examples of injustice that you would be focusing on because it seems to me we're going either more inclusively or in a different direction from things like climate refugees we're mm-hmm. talking about who get, are we talking about people who are getting displaced because of climate change or people who are coming across borders and being held illegally or stuck in refugee camps? Mm-hmm. There. 
Um, when I say climate justice, we're referring to uh, the former example. We're, we're talking about people. We're talking about human beings that are affected by climate change. And there's different effects of climate change. We even talk about how gentrification is a form of, is a form of, of, of climate in, it's injustice. Um, displacing families, um, charging um, newcomers to a community that has been in existence for hundreds of years. Yeah. The folks who've been living there, generations that have been living in communities are driven out um, because they can't even afford to live there anymore. Yeah. Some folks don't look at that as, you know, we're, we're talking about net zero, we're talking about sustainability, and we're, but we're not talking about how in Flint, Michigan, individuals still don't have clean drinking water. You know, and it's been years and, and a mother can't make a bottle for her infant without worrying about whether or not she's going to poison them. And the disproportionate um, effects, because Flint, Michigan, if you're looking at Flint, Michigan, Flint, Michigan has the heaviest, the highest population of African-Americans. However, the state of Michigan is not that black. But the city where the individuals can't get clean drinking water is highly populated by African-Americans. So how do you address that? Oh, so we have folks, we, we talk about policy. Policy a lot of times is, mm. um, is where, it's, where it's at. And we have folks within our um, ecosystem, within the B-Lab ecosystem, that work on local business policies. Because if we can make a requirement, say, for example, that businesses um, have to uh, pay for a certain tax or pay for, or there's a policy that requires businesses to not dump the policies that require businesses to pay the right um, income or, or a right ratio. If they're, then we can shift the requirements of what, it, you can't have a business if you're doing this. But right now there aren't policies or parameters in place that are built in protection. So, 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 we're, so we talk about policy and a lot of times community work. Well, I would, my, my next question, excuse me, is how, if you're not the government, and that's going to, of course, any kind of policy implementation that you would want to have come through the government, that's going to take forever, mm -hmm. and you've got to get it through the House and the Senate, Senate and all the lot, various lobbying and things. How do organizations, whether they're uh, B Corp or not, how do they, how, what can they do? Yeah, that's a good question. So a few things. I try to just, I, I try to talk about Jedi work in rings, right? So you've got the, the closest ring is you. How do you educate yourself? What do you know about? What do you read? What inform, are you, are you feeding yourself information that's diverse? Are you reading the same author? Are you reading the same articles? Are you are you considering another magazine written from another perspective? Because it starts here. I can't change the person's ideology about policy until I change their minds. So I have to understand what I believe and what my standards are. That's the most inner circle. Mm -hmm. Then you have your friends and your family. Do you have conversations with your, if you're, especially if you're not a person of color? But this is not just for for non-POCs, people of color. This is for everyone. Just because you have brown skin doesn't mean that you're comfortable with having a conversation about race. It doesn't mean that you're comfortable having a conversation about justice. 
So these are muscles that we all have to exercise. So practice having conversations and trying to change the minds of your friends and your family. Now we're at work. What can we do in HR? What can we do in policies internally? What can we do in the C-suite? Um, and so there's things that we can all do. Um, at B-Lab, we talk about cathedrals. Um, and it's the idea that some of us may not be here when that cathedral is built. If you think about a cathedral, like in ancient times, it took hundreds of years to build. And someone could be on one corner of that cathedral, stacking rocks, you know, building one aspect and another person is in a completely another. And they're all important. They're all important pieces to the larger cathedral, whether you see the end goal or whether you only see your little spot. So I look at justice and equity work in that. If the only, if your fight is at your kitchen table, having the conversation with your mother, your sister, your brother, your aunts, your uncles, so that they then go and have that conversation with their friends and their family. If that's what you can do, then do that. If you can't, and if you're ready for more, then you have conversations at work that talk about what you've learned because now you've learned about systemic racism, you've learned about climate justice, you've learned about climate injustice. So now you can have conversations at work and say, hey, mental health really is a problem. And I understand that mental health is not accessible to everyone. And I'm seeing a problem. What can we instill that's different? Look at what's already here. A lot of times creativity, it's easier I wholeheartedly believe this, and I'm curious if you do too. It is easier to create something new than it is to change something that's already there. It's really hard to see something different once you've already seen a finished product. Re-envisioning that is difficult. So we have energy to do something different. Let's just do something different. Sometimes it's not about doing something different. It's about taking what's already there, breaking it down, and rebuilding it. And we get focused on what's easy. Let's make another policy, another rule, another regulation, but we're not fixing the problem that's already here. Yeah. So what I encourage folks to do is maybe not necessarily look at what we can do that is completely new and different, but look at your policies inside of your organization. What's making you uncomfortable? Something small. We had a policy on our travel policy back when the world was different and we could travel for could work. Travel. It could go away. Um, and it was, you know, travel, everyone got $1,500 for uh, professional development, which is amazing, right? Let's put ourselves on the back. That is amazing. Most colleges, most organizations don't give that much money at the discretion of a staff member for professional development. However, in order to tap into or access that professional development, one had to book a room, schedule the thing, get the flight, da, 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 da. And then what do we do? Submit the receipts for reimbursement. What assumptions are there? Oh, great question. We're assuming that you have the money to put up, that you have expendable income, that you can wait to receive that, that money. We're assuming you know how to go online and book a reservation. We're assuming you know how to book a flight. We're assuming you've been on a flight before. We're assuming you understand the ins and outs of travel. We're under, there's a lot of assumptions that are there. And so what we saw was there were certain pockets of people, folks of color, that were not using the professional development in the same way as their non-POCs. One could assume, huh, does that mean people of color don't like professional development? 
Does that mean people of color don't want to learn and grow, right? Staff members might make that assumption. Managers might make that assumption. And now you have, not at B-Lab, but now you might have staff being coined as lazy, ungrateful. They don't want to go above and beyond. Now we're getting compared because of professional development, something that is an option for everyone, is now becoming a divider in a comparison of this person is excelling because they're doing all the professional development, they're going, they're learning, they're growing, but this, this person isn't. And why? And so getting at the why behind it is what's important. That's what you can do at work. Because before we start going and putting all of our energy out into the world, we kind of have to like get our house in order. We kind of have to make sure that we're doing what we're asking others to do. And you'd be surprised at how many things are embedded in what we think is good. You know, professional development is a wonderful thing to be able to offer to staff, but how we go about it. And so asking yourself the question, are there impediments? What are those impediments? You know, and what can I do to remove those barriers? Mm. That's great. I, it made me think of a couple things as you were talking. One is uh, I had someone on this call uh, a while back ago who said, uh, and I'm thinking about policy and changing policy as you were mentioning it. And he grew up in a family where his mother would use things and reuse things and repurpose things. And when she was done with everything she could think of, she would say to her two boys, what could you do with this? What else could we do with this? So in terms of having the energy to either create something entirely new or take something that's already existing that we already know has some limitations and saying, well, what else is possible? What could we do with this? And the thing that I'm thinking that has to do with even pulling back the curtain a little bit more is that we're talking about a kind of conversation that happens for people who recognize that there's a problem and mm. that are willing to be a part of the change to make that problem either diminish it or eliminate it altogether. And yet, I am loving everything you're talking about, and it's reminding me of the population that is driven by fear. And if you give someone this, then it's taken away from me. Mm. And one of the things that we, we talked about briefly before this call was how you have made it your mission, if you will, to include love and caring into the work that you do. So what about those people? And without naming names or particular parts of the country or anything, really, what about those people who are opposed? Mm opposed to change because that's true in any organization there will always be a part of the population that is consumed by a fear of lack and mm. not enough and if you take this then i won't have it or i will suffer if you give something to someone else yeah mm. that's a good question and i and what i like about your story is she thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And when she could think no more, she wasn't done. She asked someone else, children, children. She went to children and was like, what do you think? Um, and if that's not the most perfect example of like creativity 
and bringing in someone that you typically wouldn't ask or asking a perspective that is very different from your own and just to see and give them a chance to throw in their ideas. Um, very simply put, it's not that hard to do. <laughs> just ask the question. Um, and so on that vein, right, like the opposers, um, my world is full of opposers, right? Uh, I love what you've mentioned. Uh, Tim Wise, uh, I heard this when I went to go uh, to a conference <laughs> using my professional development. Um, and I met Tim Wise for the first time. Um, look him up. He's an amazing, he's a white guy, but he is like, he's a wonderful, wonderful person to follow, to learn from, to read from. And he, uh, I heard him say for the first time, um, to a person of privilege or something along these lines, to a person of privilege, equality is oppression. Because if I'm used to getting it, you're taking it from me. You're taking it from me. And I think the only real way to get to the opposers, one of the real ways, I won't say the only, one of the really impactful ways to get to opposers is to build that empathy. And so you have to do a couple, you gotta do a couple things, right? Storytelling is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Storytelling is, and you gotta know what story to tell with what audience. That's just the reality. You have to understand what story is going to depict what I'm trying to say. What story is going to pick at the heartstrings and make the person hearing it say, I would have never, who knew? I didn't know. I'm thinking about it differently now. So to me, storytelling is really, really important. Um, so I usually try to incorporate storytelling in, into anything that I'm doing because I think it's, it kind of grounds people. Um, you have to see that people are human. A lot of times statistics and headlines and stuff that you get really muddies the water and pulls it further and further away from humanity. It's the idea of people. So I can have a conversation with an opposer and they're having a lot of conversations about the idea of a person, you know, this can't happen because certain people, right? If my daughter who happens to be um, a, a non-POC, my white daughter would like to go to a college and your black daughter wants to go to a college, they're gonna give your black daughter my daughter's spot. We have to talk, who told you that? Why is that? Why do you feel your daughter should get the spot over my daughter? Well, what makes my daughter less qualified, like what makes my daughter less qualified, interested than yours? And sometimes really having those real conversations People will elevate things in themselves that they didn't actually understand were there because it was an assumption, because it was a number that was given. It was a statistic. You know, they were told. They were told. Um, it, I still have had, I still have conversations with folks who think that um, Black people go to school for free. I have three degrees and I'm here to tell you my college, my loan debt will, will prove that we do not go to school for free. Um, and so there's this ideology that if you are a person of color, that you got where you got because someone cut you a break. And I think it's important to think about what that means. And so empathy and, and kind of almost holding the mirror up to people's face is really, um, how I approach opposers, but you also have to understand when to move along. Sometimes 
people are going to feel how they're going to feel. And people are going to be oppositional no matter what you say. And you have to know when you cut your losses and spend your energy on something that's going to be more lucrative. Sometimes the lucrative thing is not to pull the opposer along. Sometimes the lucrative thing is to change the environment in which the opposer is in. And then the opposer can either choose to change or leave the environment. Wow, that's a great, great way to see it. I you, And I love this emphasis on storytelling as a way in. We had a situation uh, with us individually where when we finally, because I live in a rural area in upstate New York, so uh, it's not the same as if I was living in Manhattan, I can say that much. So we had yeah. we finally got our internet service from Spectrum, uh, the fellow who came to uh, sell us the system was from Iran or Iraq, I don't remember which, dark, kind of swarthy, and um, but he his family moved to Brooklyn when he was 13. So he was a very savvy guy. He worked as a history teacher during the day in a small town. And at night he sold uh, internet services door to door. So he told us the story of going to uh, a house here in our area out in the country. There was a Confederate flag on the lawn and his supervisor said maybe we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't go here and mm. and mo short for muhammad said no no we're gonna go so he knocks on the door this guy comes to the door and they're they've got all their tags on and you know so they're clearly identifiable Identified. the man at the door after they introduce themselves he looks at mo and he says oh you're one of them and mo says and he knows exactly where this guy is mm. going and he says Oh, you mean the cable guy? And he said, no, Iraq or Iran. I'm sorry, I don't have it exactly right in my mind anymore. Um, And then Mo said, well, you know, I like to think that I served my country because during the war I was a translator for four years for the army. Did you serve your country? And the guy said, no. But he had a cousin who did. And mm. because, and meanwhile, the supervisor is pulling on Mo's jacket, like, you know, it's going to come out. <laughs> but that willingness to stay in the conversation changed everything. The guy invited him in. They were having coffee and a cigar by the end of the conversation. No. I don't know if he bought the cable services, but <laughs> nevertheless, I was so impressed with that willingness to stay in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Obviously knowing when there would have been a real potential for danger, but yeah. still not being willing to explore and just see what was beyond that initial uh, resistance. I love that. You know? and you're, you're, that's so true because again, I think I mentioned like talking about race is not, it's uncomfortable. I still get uncomfortable sometimes. Like it's uncomfortable. Um, it's difficult to do. It's not easy. Shying away from it, talking about injustice, justice, equity, shying away from it will not make you better, right? Like think of something that you've ever had to do, whether it was take a test, you know, learn how to ride a bike, learn yoga. I don't know. There was a time when you couldn't do it. And because you were committed, you kept doing it, 
kept doing it. And eventually you got better. And eventually you got better. This is no different. If you shy away from the conversation, it's always going to be an uncomfortable conversation. But if you don't and you push and you do a little harder and you do it a little bit more, eventually it won't be so scary. Eventually it won't be some feat that you have to do. But I always like to say, like, just beyond that, just beyond that, let's go a little further. Let's ask, why did he say that? I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure there's a reason for why my presence has triggered this individual. That's not my fault. That's their problem. However, if we want to create togetherness, dialogue, and change, it's important to sometimes be willing to have the conversation, right? Don't put yourself in harm's way. Um, and there's, there's a lot of harm that can happen. But I think when you're able, when you're able, and we talked about that spectrum, right? Some days I don't have it. Some days I don't have, I'm like, today's not the day. I need self-care. I need to put myself first. I don't, I can't pour from an empty cup. And so today's not the day. But Mo on that day had a little bit more and with respect and kindness, he responded, but he was honest and he was open. And that stranger respected him, yeah. had empathy, built empathy in a moment's notice, and later was able to have a conversation. And I don't know who that individual is, but I guarantee that individual has a different outlook now than he had before Mo knocked on his door. Yeah, yeah. So there's something in here that is striking me in particular, which is being willing to listen. And that is becoming more of an invitation these days to really listen to what the other person is saying without having an agenda, without waiting just because you want to say what you have to say, but yeah. really listening to what, what the other person is saying. Not so much to the words, but what's behind the words. Because that's when you get that feeling quality behind the words, that to me seems like the place where there is some common ground, which mm -hmm. is so much about what storytelling is about. So much about what storytelling is about. And you know, because I think in storytelling, when you're talking about your life, your friends, your family, the normal stuff, it more it it normalizes it. I think that people, unfortunately, when you don't know about someone's culture, upbringing, background, our mind, there's my psychology, your mind is going to make it up. It's just what you do. Your, your mind will fill in those gaps and it will fill in those gaps with information that's stored in your psyche. So that could be media, that could be what your parents taught you, it could be what your friends told you in your neighborhood, whatever, your mind will fill in those gaps. And that perception will become your reality. And you'll cross the street when you see a black man walking down the street because you have filled in the gap because you don't have a lot of interactions with the black man. You filled in the gap with experiences that are not your own yeah. that tell you that you should be afraid. Yeah. And so we have to ask ourselves, wait, why do I think that? Who told me that? Okay, my mom told me that. Sometimes we have to question what our parents told us. Sometimes we have to question what our teachers told us. We, we are now realizing, some of us have known this for a very long time. I didn't get all of my information from school. I didn't have the luxury to go to school and learn everything that I needed to learn to be surprised or survive in school. My parents and my family had to go out of their way to put us in spaces 
that helped us learn about our culture or helped us learn our side of the story mm-hmm. because the history books in school only showed one side of the story if the real story at all. And so other cultures didn't necessarily need to do that. What they got, and so they held on to that information. And so now we're realizing like, hey, you only got a fraction and it was really, really muddled with the information. And anything that left a red stain was eradicated because it made people feel uncomfortable. It didn't make it not happen. Right, right. And so it's important to have those conversations and ask ourselves, why do I think this? Like, what is, is this someone else's fear that has been given to me? And now I'm holding on to it as a fear that is causing me to be discriminatory or oppressive to other people yeah. and thinking, is this actually going to affect me? Because a lot of times it won't. It won't. You Most things won't affect your day. Whether or not this kid goes to college and gets, get, goes to school, it's not really going to affect me. So we have to think about why is it that I'm standing for the things that I stand for? Why do I believe that this gentleman at my door who appears to look a certain way is a threat to me right now in this moment? And having some dialogue and some empathy helps you understand this is just a normal guy who's at work like anybody else. Yeah, either a threat or someone to be dismissed. Like as you were talking, I'm thinking about the American Indian, the heritage of the American Indians and how their lands were taken away and they're put on reservations where they have no services or Asian Americans, Japanese people who were interned in this country or the Irish or the Chinese when they came to this country and how they were treated. Mm -hmm. That to me, it keeps going back to that question of if a person is willing to ask it, who am I and what really matters? And am I really so different from someone, excuse me, who has a different color or speaks differently? Am I really that different? Most of the time, no. And that's what good, it's good to have the conversations, right? Because what people are going to realize one or two things, you're either so much alike that like, like that's going to blow your mind. Like me too, me too, me too. Of course. Why? What, What made you think it was different? Or you're going to realize that our experiences are so different, you know, that, that your perspective should change. Because if, if you can live in a world where someone who has so many similarities to you can have such a different experience, something's not right. Yeah. If we all want, if we're all looking for happiness and then how we define happiness your box might be different than mine, you know, mm-hmm. but we all we all want to be happy. We all want to be safe. We all want basic needs fulfilled. The things that we want are not so different from one another. They're not so different. They're not so different. And there are barriers and impediments that are not necessarily our fault, right? But I think it's time that we just say, we're not, it's the, not the blame game. I think that when I look back over history and how, how equity conversations, right? Because equity and diversity are not new conversations. They've evolved. But when we think about that affirmative action and all those things, um, these notions are that things are so, so very different, but we really want the same thing. 
We want the same things. We just now have to understand that of no fault of the people that are probably living in these spaces right now, right? While we might perpetuate them knowingly or not, we didn't build these systems. We're existing in the systems that were already built. Now that, but now that we know better, right? There's a saying in the African-American community, like when you know better, you do better. You wouldn't, now that you know that this is a problem, surely we can't just say, oh, well, you know, now that we're able to see like, oh, we are really alike. We have a lot in common. We all want the same things, but you'll never get it based off of the, the structures that are right here. You'll never get it. Like everything is built up to ensure that you don't get it. Whereas everything is built up for some of us, some folks to get it. Like the systems are, are made to ensure that some folks get it. And that same system is made to ensure that others don't. And once you see that and recognize that, it's really hard to just ignore it if you're a decent person. Yeah, yeah. So when you have, going back to what you you do at your day job, which is really, seems like it's your life, really. I love it, yeah. One expression of it. You had mentioned a phrase when we talked earlier about capitalism being informed by empathy. Can you say some more about that and how you see it happening and informing the work that you do? <sighs> Capitalism as it stands is, is problematic. Like a lot of like the health system in the US, in the US context, let me say that, um, like the health system, like the education system, uh, housing systems, right? These systems were not built to create equity. They weren't built, right? Shopping, rate, how people, how we're paid, you know, black women are still paid less than any one group comparatively. Um, but yet the most educated group in the US, you know, black women go to college at a higher rate than any other group in the US. And how in the, in the United States, where if you do this and you do this and you do this, you'll live the American dream. And we have some folks that do this, 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 and this, and don't get to get access to the American dream. Mm. And so capitalism is the glue that holds all of this together. How much, you know, one makes, where we live, redlining, can I get the, the, the access and the capital? Education is different. We all know that schools that are in, in, in areas that have higher taxes, where people can afford better ta higher taxes, have better school systems, right? None of these systems are equitable. They're literally built on how much money is brought in to a household or to a community. So if we think about it in that way, that's why business and capitalism is literally at the center of everything because if we can find a better way or more equitable way to distribute capital, money, then everybody would win instead of hoarding it all in these one spaces. And that's where, you know, you've mentioned uh, the feeling of, you know, if, if I take the taxes out of my community, my children's school is not gonna be as good. And that's not my fault that that's where they live. Um, and how do, we, how do we shift that? So capitalism is, at the, is how we change, empathy's why. You know, capitalism is, is, is how we get 
to the equitable outcome is, is we focus on what we can change and change. Some people say like, are we changing capitalism? Are we building, re- redoing capitalism? Um, but empathy is, is the, why should I take away from me, my family, my future, my future children to give to yours? Um, and so empathy, right? And, and getting someone to think about, well, if you want good education for your children, why should somebody else's children have less uh, quality education because of the color of their skin? That little baby can't control the color of their skin. Why do they deserve less than your baby? Yeah. If it's not good enough for you, why, what makes you the determining factor for why it's good enough for someone else? And when you give that power to someone, they don't want it. If you say to someone, okay, pick which child, here's two children, which one should get the better education and which one? No one wants that responsibility, but you want to hide behind policies and, and school districts and things of that nature. And so it's really about getting down to the root cause and helping people have that empathy to drive why capitalism should change. So do you think that with the work that you do, and granted you're with a very uh, elite, if I might say, B Corp certified organizations, do you see this as a, a, I mean, this is your, this is your playground, this is your life's work. So that says something to me about this is where you see where you can help the most. Mm with these organizations and hopefully, what was the number, 2,600? You can- 700 plus, yeah. Okay, so that it keeps expanding and that people, that other organizations that may not be able to meet all of the standards for transparency and accountability and purpose and so forth, that they're going to be touched by this too. 100%, I believe that 100%. So you know, just as another tidbit, like we have our basic impact assessment or BIA, which we're, we're looking at, you know, we're, we're hoping in the next year or so to continue to evolve that and actually make that better in alignment with where we want to go and really uh, measuring what matters. That's a free tool. Any, any organization can use that tool to see where they are, to see like, if I wanted to be a B Corp, right, you have to have 80 points as it stands now. Um, uh, if I wanted to be B Corp, where would I be? How, like, how would this compare? Where, where are the areas that I would need to improve upon or focus on? So that's a free service that's available. It's a tool that any, any organization can log in and at least kind of get that baseline. We're also working with other um, policy-focused uh, organizations to, to talk about what are some of the standards that they can, that they can take to create standards for all businesses. So that it can be something to say, maybe B Corp is not for, because remember, we're a nonprofit organization, but we certify for-profit organizations. Mm. So nonprofits couldn't be a B Corp. But are there standards that we can put in place? Are there communities um, within businesses and practices that we can create that that businesses, whether nonprofit or full-on B Corps, or hoping to become B Corps, they can instill some of these practices and it gives them more direction on standards that they can that they can instill that allow them to be more in alignment with, with, with this kind of work. 
that was actually the word I was thinking of uh, alignment because well two things actually one was how accessible the work that you're doing is it's not just for the companies who are interested in being certified but it's and it's not only for all of the people who are being impacted beyond the shareholders but it's for wannabes who can take something from this and align with values that they may not even have understood that they're operating by now right and that's where i see a, a a a gap in a lot of organizations is that they are not clear on what it is they're doing, what their mission statement is. Yeah. Consequently, things show up just like the ones you've been talking about, these gaps, these misunderstandings, these inequities that happen that we just haven't taken the time to understand Mm -hmm. that this is having an impact, not just on the people who are working in that organization, but their families, their communities, mm-hmm. that it's that question of alignment. And again, driven by that understanding that we're all basically the same at, mm. in our essence. At the essence, at the core, like at the, all these like cultural things are, it's okay. We're allowed to have culture. We're allowed to have experiences. But at the core, we're all the same, Yeah, you know, as a, at, the, at the human level, right? We want love, we want uh, companionship, we want health, we want our children to, to thrive. Yeah. You know, we want a roof over, like who wants to suffer? You know, yeah. and, and some folks are put in positions and that's, and put in positions, they never got a choice um, yeah. to start in suffering, to start their lives in suffering, their families, began in suffering. And I think that while people don't see that connection, businesses and capitalism have a very, very unique and powerful hand that they can play in preventing and stopping the suffering of people. Mm. We don't have to live like this. And it's a shame that we live in a world where on one side of the street, someone could could be living like this, and across and around the corner, someone else, and and the bliss, and 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 the turning of the other cheek that occurs because it doesn't affect me. Yeah. And so that empathy and having the conversations, and then sometimes really bridging that gap to say it actually does affect you. Let's talk about how because there's there, there's there's lots of research that are out there in terms of businesses that. Um, uh, that really do show that diversity, equity, justice, and inclusion folks are looking for this. They're expecting this from organizations whenever they're coming in. So you may not get the most talented individuals because this is the type of work that individuals that have that talent are looking for. They want businesses that are focused on these types of things that care about community, care about collective action, right? And so if you're not going to get on board with that, you might be. You might have to understand. You're not going to get the same talent. You may not have mm-hmm. um, those experiences. Um, it is proven that diverse uh, organizations make more money, right? Not only that. Not only are staff looking to work with those organizations. Consumers and people are looking to choose where they put their money. Yes. And so, if you are a business that are that are against individuals' values, 
So the shifting tides and the civil and social and unrest and how racism is becoming an, an everyday conversation, folks are expecting that you will take a stand in your business. And if you don't, they might choose not to spend their money there. So to say that this doesn't affect the bottom line would not be true. And there's a lot of research that actually shows that, um, which shouldn't be necessary in the conversation, but really help um, changing the ideology around the real um, access that capitalism can create. Yeah, it shouldn't be happening, but we got to meet life where it is, right? We meet people where they are. We meet folks where they are. And if that's the conversation that we have to start with, I'm okay. Yeah. As long as we end in the, as long as we end where we need to be, um, and that's that's the beauty of this job, right? Sometimes you have to know how to approach the conversation, know your audience, know with how to start, right? Um, because there's there's something for everyone. I've, I've I've been saying that there's something for everyone in this in this, right? There's something you could do, whether it's personal, at your job, at the policy local level. There's something that you could do. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well. We have somehow come to the top of the hour together. A whole hour. I don't know how that happened. It always goes so fast, but particularly today it did. And I want to thank you so much and ask you to, if um, how can people get in touch with you, find out more about B Lab, B Corp, ways that they can get in this conversation? Yeah, I think the the easiest, honestly, the easiest thing is to contact me on my LinkedIn page. Um, you look up, look me up, Alonda Williams, E-L-L-O-N-D-A, Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. Um, there's only one of me. <laughs> so you can easily kind of track me down on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out to me. But also all of our B-Lab pages, B-Lab US Canada, B-Lab Global. Um, you can also follow us on LinkedIn or check us out on our web. Um, but feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions and you want to learn more about Jedi at B-Lab. Um, I love to talk about this stuff. So thanks for inviting me. Oh, thank you. It really has been a very inspiring conversation. Oh, same. I, I, I love talking to folks like you because then I get inspired by you and it's like, okay, keep going. Keep doing it. It makes me wonder what kind of a day are we going to have now? What are we going to have? Starting out this way. Yes, exactly. Oh, Nina, it was lovely spending uh, an hour of my morning with you. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are listening or watching, thank you for joining us. We will see you in the next episode. So bye for now. Thank you.